Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to mitigate crises and help teams get back on track. This podcast is about helping the C-suite leader to navigate challenges with confidence. For today's leader, I'm here to help you get back on track. Tomorrow's leader, let me partner with you to learn the secrets of the C-suite. Wherever you're at in your career, this is the podcast for you. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of The Drop-In CEO, and I am so grateful you joined us for another episode of the podcast where week after week, I speak to amazing, really amazing leaders who share their insights with you and hopefully inspire you. And if you like this episode, and I know you will, please share with others. Don't keep it to yourself. Rate, review, subscribe so we can continue to bring you amazing programming. And just know on a personal note, we bring these shows to you because I can care about the C-suite leader of today and tomorrow to navigate their challenges with confidence. And today, I am so thrilled. I have found this amazing guest. His name is Guillermo Sunline, who has spent 25 years at the intersection of technology innovation, new space entrepreneurial ventures, and early stage space investments. He has co-founded nine for-profit ventures and four nonprofit organizations while also serving at the forefront of the global private space economy. He is also co-founder and CEO of Humans Divina. We are going to talk so much about that. He has been involved in so many organizations, traveled the world. He is also a former officer in the U.S. Marine Corps and has earned his degree in economics from the University of California at Berkeley and his JD from the University of California College of Law, San Francisco. He is an extraordinary person, and I'm so grateful to bring him onto the show. Welcome to the show, Guillermo. Thanks, Deb. It's great to be here, but now I'm humbled by the intro you gave me. You are such an accomplished person. And just a bit for my listeners, we got on a phone with each other and I said, oh my, you have to share your journey with my audience and we're going to glean some amazing insights. So I would love for you to share a bit about yourself personally and your journey and the work you're doing now. Yeah, sounds great. I heard you ask other guests you know, about their business journey and it's interesting. I think the reason you and I first connected was because I wrote a post, I think, in LinkedIn about my serial careers and how I've had essentially eight what I call micro careers, you know, lasting three to five years each. In looking back on my business journey, I'm, I'm reminded of a of a quote by Joe Walsh, the guitarist for the Eagles, when he was interviewed for a documentary about the history of the Eagles a few years ago, and he was recounting his whole life and the time with the Eagles. At one point, he said something that I thought was pretty beautifully poetic coming from a guy like Joe Walsh. He said, you know, life is strange. You know, when you're living it, it seems like a complete mess. Like you don't know what you're doing. You're not making the right decisions. You're making wrong decisions. You're taking one step forward, two steps back. And you don't have a plan. It just seems like a big mess. But then you reach a point in your life where you look back on your life and it just seems like a well-choreographed ballet that couldn't have happened any other way. And I thought that was poetic, not just for him and his life, but I think it did hit home with me because it did feel like he was talking directly about my life and my business journey of eight micro-careers. So anyway, just to kind of use that as context, to know about my business journey, you kind of have to go all the way back to before I was in business. When I was 11 years old, I had a recurring dream that I was the commander for the first colony on Mars. 
which I thought was a kind of interesting. Now that I have three grown kids and I've raised kids, I, I find it an interesting dream for an 11 year old to have. But I had this recurring dream and that just kind of framed my life, at least early on from age 11 to 19. I had it all mapped out for myself. I was going to be a NASA astronaut because that's at the time that was the only way to become the commander of a Martian colony. So I had it all all mapped out. It seemed pretty clean. In order to be a commander of a Martian colony, I was going to have to be a mission commander within NASA. In order to be a mission commander, I had to be a pilot. In order to become a NASA pilot, you had to be a test pilot. To be a test pilot, you had to be a, a fighter jet pilot. So I had it all mapped out until, as life does, life threw me a curveball. At age 19, my eyesight went bad. And at the time, that disqualified me from becoming a military jet pilot. And that's when Joe Walsh's quote kicked in because my life just started, to me, it seemed like a big mess. I was just going in a million different directions, kind of misguided, or not misguided, just unguided. And that's what kicked off my eight micro careers. And and I'll walk through the eight here in a second, but I guess just to kind of bookend the 11-year-old dream with where I am today to show as I go through my business journey, that Joe Walsh was right, that now at age 57, looking back, the last 40 years couldn't have happened any other way. And it was very interesting. So looking back, my eight micro careers actually did prepare me, maybe not to be the commander of the first Martian colony, but to help humanity get to the point where it is a multi-planet species. I know that's a theme that seems to come out of Elon Musk's mouth at least once a week right? Making humanity a multi-planet species. And so if you think about what it would take to set up an off-world community of humans somewhere on Mars or anywhere else, there's a lot of different factors that go into what that community would look like. And a couple of years ago, when I was looking at my life and trying to figure out what to do next, I looked back on my life and recognized these eight micro-careers and realized that the eight micro-careers actually helped prepare me for helping humanity create this off-world community. Because here are my eight micro-careers now, after all that preface. you know, First, I studied economics, which any off-world community is going to have to figure out what their economy is going to look like. I studied and practiced law, so any off-world community is going to need a legal system. As you mentioned in the intro, I served four years active duty in the United States Marine Corps. Any off-world community is going to have to deal with leadership structure and security. Did, as you mentioned, technology, innovation, startups, beginning in Silicon Valley and working out from that, early stage investment, entrepreneurship, all these things that were going to be necessary to create the building blocks for taking humanity off-world. Obviously, I've done space, so I've been involved in the space industry for the last 20 years. At some point, if humanity is going to become a multi-planet species, before we establish a permanent human presence, someone's going to have to be the first to go. And those people are going to be explorers. So about 14 years ago, 15 years ago, I took a parallel track and did some exploration work here on Earth using human-rated submersibles. So I co-founded a company that designs, builds, and operates deep diving submersibles and went on several expeditions to explore the ocean bottom. And then any off-world community is going to have to be completely self-sustaining. So for the last few years, I've also been doing work with sustainable economies and sustainable systems here on Earth. 
And we were talking about this a little bit before we started the, the program. I believe if humanity is going to become a multi-planet species, we need to take the best of humanity with us. And the one thing that sets humanity apart here on Earth is our immense capacity for creativity. And I'm a believer that any off-world community is going to have to be made up of not just scientists and engineers, but also artists and writers and musicians and sculptors and people who can tell the stories about humanity. And so over the last year, I've worked on starting a new chapter in my life, my eighth micro career, which is a, a music focused venture that just came out of stealth mode a couple of weeks ago. So it's kind of a complicated business journey as far as business journeys are concerned. You know, I'm sure my mom and probably my ex-wife would have loved for me to just go to law school and be a lawyer and work at a law firm for 30 years. But instead, I've I've gone through all of these winding turns in, in my river of life. and But it's been held together by that same common thread of helping to make humanity a multi-planet species. Oh my gosh. So this is so fascinating. And and I love the thing about, you know, your life seemed to be messy, but in the end, it all made sense. And so the key message I take out of that is for anybody out there, this is, well, I did this and then I did that and I did that. And I, it didn't feel like it had a grand plan. But then when you arrive at that point for which you are in a role that you are providing value or elevating people, you know that everything you've done, positive, negative, constructive failures, et cetera, set you up for this point right now to arrive and be the person for humanity or what have you. So it is messy. <laughs> I think you were telling my story as well. We're the same age. And I think the, the other thing that is really compelling here is the fact that a lot of people are setting themselves or allowing themselves to be judged by society's ruler or narrative of you need to be in a role for a particular amount of time, or you need to be this, or if this is your education, you should pursue that. Otherwise, people question you. Why'd you do that? Or that didn't make sense. And then it, it makes people risk averse from then saying, well, I got these skills. I could probably go over here and provide some value over there. But we hold ourselves back because they said, I've never done that. Oh, that's not possible. That's not the normal course. So I'm throwing the next question back at you. Why you? What courage or confidence did you say, yeah, 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 <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing these things despite what other people said? Or did you have some cheerleaders along the way that said, keep going? You know, the inverse of my business journey that I've talked about with a lot of friends of mine or, or colleagues who are the inverse of me, they're maybe a little bit more risk averse or they've had the inverse kind of career. Like I, like I said, maybe they went to law school and they been at a law firm for the last 30 years, or they worked the way up through a company in a corporate setting, and now they're CEOs or in the C-suite, or whatever it is that their profession was, I've run across a lot of people who get to be 40, 50 years old. They've been doing a career for 20, 30 years. And I think part of what drives this concept of a midlife crisis is exactly what you got to at the end there people all of a sudden realize that they've been doing something for like 20, 30 years, the bulk of their life, and they don't understand why they did it. It's not because they wanted to do it. It's maybe because there was peer pressure or societal pressure or parental pressure, or it was just what they were expected to do for their families. And they get to a point where they realize, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm happy doing this or fulfilled, or if I died today, is my tombstone going to read what I wanted it to read? And they feel like they need to make a change but they don't know where to start. And more importantly, they don't know if they have the courage to make that change. And and I've helped a lot of 
people over the years make that kind of transition, you know, do something where they break from it. So to give you the direct answer to your question, I'll give you an anecdote. I was 22 years old at Berkeley, seven weeks from graduating with a degree in economics. I was sitting in my introduction to accounting class, but I was waiting for class to start. And I didn't have a job lined up for after graduation. I didn't know what I was going to do with an economics degree. And all of a sudden, it hit me that I wasn't sure why I was even in college, why I was even there. Because my original reason for going to college was to go into the Navy, become an officer, become a pilot, become an astronaut. And since that got taken away from me when I was 19, I didn't know why I was even in college, why I was there. Now, I was a good student. I was a Berkeley, I was good at school. It's not like I wasn't enjoying school, but I didn't understand why at 22 years old, I was about to enter the workforce as a college graduate. And then it hit me that the reason I was there was because I was always a good student. So I was expected to go to a good school. I was expected to go to college. My parents were immigrants. I was an immigrant. We came over from Argentina. My parents did not have a college education. And so they wanted to bring me and my brother and sister to the US so that we could get college education. So there was an expectation for my parents. There was expectation for my teachers. There was expectation for my fellow students. And I realized those were not good reasons for me to give up four years of my life going to college. And so seven weeks before graduation, I packed up my backpack walked out of the lecture hall before the accounting class started. And three days later, I was disenrolled from Berkeley. I dropped out of school seven weeks before graduation. And obviously, since you heard my my business journey, I actually went back and finished the degree the next year. But it was that, that moment of walking out of that lecture hall was probably the biggest turning point in my life because it taught me as myself, that I had the strength to go against the grain, right? To, to make major life changes despite whatever direction everyone else expected me to go. And that moment was when I took charge of my life again. And when I went back and finished my degree, yeah, it was only a few months later. It, not much time had passed. But for me, I was going back because I wanted to finish the degree. It wasn't because anyone else was expecting me to do it. And I think I was very fortunate that I did that when I was 22 years old because it did allow me to make all these sideways moves in my in my life and in my career that that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have had the courage to attempt and and now as I've gone on and met a lot of people that they feel stuck in their careers or in their life journeys I feel I guess blessed, you know, that I've always had the courage to make those big changes. And I wish other people had that same courage or at least had the the wherewithal, you know, to give it a shot. And so that's why you and I are talking today, because I keep talking about the C-suite leader. If they're in a position, they get stuck and they don't know who to turn to. So experts like you, you can mentor them in business or in their area of expertise or the future C-suite leaders of tomorrow that have been very talented done what's been expected, done by choice, and they get to a place where they're not in control anymore. They don't feel like they're in control of their careers. The landscape has changed. What they did in the past is not getting them ahead. So they're stuck. And that's why I bring people such as you to either inspire or share some insights or have the courage to leave, <laughs> maybe for a short amount of time or when risk is minimal, because sometimes we have obligations for which we just can't pick up and leave. But 
ultimately we need to control our destiny. It sounds like that's exactly what you did. You know, when you talk about future leaders or future C-suite executives, depending on how far, how young you go, right, in, generationally in, in that today, I find that the younger generation, my children included, have the inverse problem, I think. They've kind of grown up thinking that they should do what feels right. They should do what makes them feel fulfilled. They don't have a set path chartered out for them, unless they want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or something like that. But for the rest of everyone else, they've kind of been told that they should follow their dreams, follow their heart, you know, and do these things, which is great. But then most of them don't know what that is. I've I've also been blessed by the fact that I had that recurring dream when I was 11, that I always had that guiding light, that I always had that North Star that was kind of guiding me. A lot of people don't have that. And I've even had to tell my own kids, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, there's a lot of people that go their entire lives and don't find that one thing that, that drives them. And even if you do find it, it might not happen for a while. You know, most of what people attribute my success to it really came in the form of two ventures that I did. But I did the first one when I was 40 and the next one when I was 43. So, you know, it takes some time to, to get there. And even then, I, I think then I, I did notice, I did know while I was doing them that they were important. But boy, it took me a long time to get there. My eyesight went bad when I was 19 and I didn't do that first one until I was 40. So that's 20 years. You know, it took a while. So if we're in good health, we have the good fortune of many, many years. And even when we start over at 50, we have many, many years to make an impact. You know, I just want to share a quick story. It's about that guiding light. If one hasn't found their guiding light or if they had it in the past and they extinguished it, they might want to pull out that journal or that keepsake box and find what was their light before. I will tell you that I was helping my son, Danny, write his college application, and he had to write something about himself. And he was struggling. And at the time, we were just talking about, well, what do you love? What are you interested in? And we started talking about Boy Scouts. He eventually became an Eagle Scout. He eventually did a project that benefited the community. And I asked him such questions about, well, what was it about that that is fulfilling? And he said, just the connectivity with the people in the community who can enjoy the park space that I created. He really appreciated nature and preserving it because that's what is so important to humanity. And during that process, he actually had tears come to his eyes because he realized that was his purpose, to, to really make a difference close to the people, leveraging socioeconomics and everything like that. Eventually, he got a degree in environmental engineering, later got a business degree with hospital care administration, but it was always about how can I get closer to the humans to make an impact with the work that I'm doing. And so for anybody out there, if you had a guiding light, bring it back. If you haven't found one, spend some time finding it because it's going to help take that 11-year-old child to Mars or beyond. Yeah. And I've had those experiences specifically in the space world and in the ocean world where we run into people who grew up wanting to be astronauts, and then they ended up being a lawyer, being a salesperson, or being a technology CEO, and they want to get back to their space child. And I think Elon with with SpaceX has really helped refuel some of those early dreams. Likewise, with our ocean exploration work, there's so many people that grow up wanting to be marine biologists and, and study the oceans, and then they get away from that. And then they have an opportunity to either go underwater or go on a science expedition and they get so excited because it kind of caters to that 
that uh, dream that they had when they were a child. So, yeah, so I, I, I totally empathized your story with your son. Yeah. I wanted to take a moment to remind you that a recent study showed nearly 60% of leaders feel depleted at the end of the day. And this feeling is a key indicator of burnout and makes it difficult to lead and inspire others. If you've ever experienced that restless exhaustion, you know why CEOs are amongst the most likely candidates for experiencing job frustration. I wrote The CEO's Compass, your guide to get back on track, to confront those feelings and create a plan that is sustainable for you and your organization. I created a seven point assessment that will help you figure out your problems in days, not months. And it includes so many resources, worksheets, videos, and much, much more. If this is you, please head over to my website, dropinceo.com and click on my products, The CEO's Compass, and order yours on Amazon or other outlets. And now back to the conversation. So this is the place where I am most in awe of your work. You are the co-founder and CEO of Humans to Venus. You know, Exploration Venus, it's it's a part of what you're now coming forth with a lot in your social media. I especially like one of your blog posts where you talk about NASA havoc (laughs) and where they are not pursuing or necessarily pursuing at this time, you know, exploration in Venus. It's been focused on more of the moon and Mars. And I am just so curious why you, why a brave group of people are pursuing that. And tell me more about that work. Okay, boy. So so first of all, let's backtrack a little bit. So making humanity uh, a multi-planet species has has kind of been a goal for a lot of people for a lot of years. And it's not necessarily a universal goal. There are a lot of people that think we should not be going into space. We have plenty of things here on Earth to do, and that's fine. And so a lot of people have been looking at going to space, including NASA, And over the last 20 years or so, 25 years, there's been a transition in the space industry from the exclusive purview of a small handful of large national governments like the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans, uh, and transitioning over to being more the purview of a global private space economy, started by a lot of different people. But now there's just hundreds, if not thousands of startups around the world, billions of dollars in private capitals going into a lot of ventures around the world, all related to to space. And so there's this macro trend from government programs to the private space sector. And within the private space sector, it's primarily entrepreneurial. So it's a lot of new innovative thinking coming from outside the space industry on how to do things. Also, you get a younger generation coming in, like we were talking about earlier, looking to do more uh, fulfilling kinds of work with with their time. So all of those are kind of macro trends. So you kind of have to leave NASA a little bit isolated because NASA is a government agency for one of the largest space. It is the largest space program in the, in the world. So, And they're funded by taxpayer dollars, right? So they've got a lot of momentum built into their whole system of how they do things, which is great. They've done a great job over over many decades. Uh, And so they have had this blueprint of moon, Mars, or beyond for a long time. And that's the direction they're going. It's a big ship. It turns very slowly. But once it gets going, it has great momentum. So great. They're doing moon, Mars, and beyond. And, And that's the narrative that's been shaped globally because everyone else follows in the world tends to follow NASA. So globally, it's been moon, Mars, and beyond. Elon, in particular, with SpaceX, has really fed a lot 
of this narrative of making humanity a multi-planet species by his company's big, hairy, audacious goal of having a million humans living on the surface of Mars by the year 2050. However, there are a lot of risks associated with being on the moon. There are a lot of risks associated with being on Mars. And one of the biggest risks from a long-term multi-generational perspective is the fact that in both places, you have less than one G of gravity, like we have here on Earth. And the current medical knowledge is that we don't know if humanity can even reproduce in less than one G of gravity. It's, it, it could be possible, but we don't know because no one's ever tried it. So we don't know if we can conceive. We don't know if we can take a fetus to, to term. We don't know if we can deliver healthy babies or raise them into adulthood in less than one G of gravity. It may be possible, and hopefully it is, and then we go moon, Mars, and beyond, and we'll be fine. But gravity has always been a big sticking point. Even for me as an 11-year-old, I, I knew that was going to be an issue. Well, it turns out that uh, with Venus being about the same size and mass as Earth, it has almost the same gravity as Earth. It has 98% of our gravity. So it seems like that would be a great place to look. The reason, I think, the re main reason Elon and NASA have not looked at Venus is because the surface of Venus is completely inhospitable to human life. It's the equivalent of being, like the pressure is the equivalent of being I don't know, I think it's like 5,000 feet under underwater, and the temperature is famously known as being hot enough to melt lead. So there's no way we're ever landing on, on Venus. But it turns out the 50 kilometers off the Venusian surface in the atmosphere is a zone where uh, the temperature and pressure and radiation protection are very similar to the conditions here on Earth. So if we can float in the Venusian atmosphere at about 50 kilometers, it is as close to an Earth-like environment as we can find, with two caveats, because there's two very dangerous elements of being 50 kilometers in the Venusian atmosphere. One is that the atmosphere is primarily carbon dioxide, so it's not breathable. And the second is that the clouds in the Venusian atmosphere are made of sulfuric acid, which is very dangerous for, for human beings. But that being said, Currently, we have technologies here on Earth that can process CO2 into breathable air, and we have technologies that can protect us from sulfuric acid, including something as simple as Teflon, which we use in our kitchens. So even without major technology innovation, we can protect ourselves in the Venusian atmosphere. So it's really just a matter of going there and testing these various technologies. So anyway, so that's why we're looking at, at, at Venus. So this Humans to Venus project that we're doing are these two ventures, the nonprofit and the for-profit venture. A big part of it is to elevate Venus into the global public dialogue so that instead of talking about Moon, Mars, and beyond, we're talking about Moon, Venus, Mars, and beyond. By the way, that was another big advantage to Venus is it's much closer to Earth than Mars. So it's easier to get to, it's less expensive, and it's more safe for human spaceflight because you have to spend less time in the solar radiation to get there. So that's why we're trying to push uh, for Venus being considered. But one thing I have to say, because we're talking about business journey and life journey. So in that context, I'll add a little twist that usually I don't talk about. For me, and oh, and I left out one little piece that the big, hairy, audacious goal for SpaceX is to have a million people living on the Martian surface by the year 2050. We riffed off of that for Humans to Venus, which is for us to have a thousand people living in the Venusian atmosphere by the year 2050. So we have similar goals, just a couple orders of magnitude less. 
So what I was going to say in the context of this business journey that I usually don't share, but for me, that that goal, a thousand people in the Venusian atmosphere by the year 2050, I don't know if we're ever going to achieve that as a company. I don't know if we're ever going to achieve that as humanity, as a species. But for me, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey to get there, right? If we have that as a long-term goal, the journey that we set out from from today for the next 30 years is going to have meaning. It's going to it's going to be fulfilling because it's going to be pushing toward a goal. Whether we ever achieve it or not, to me, is almost irrelevant, right? It's just providing a, a, a blueprint for the next 20 or 30 years of my life. But just think about the scientific inventions that will come out of this that can be applied elsewhere in humanity. I mean, it. I mean, again, who thought we could get to the moon? But when you set your mind with a big, hairy, audacious goal, people rally around it and find ways. It's not perfect. There's a lot of failures. But in the process, we learn how to put a human on the moon. We are putting things on Mars, and we will put things in the atmosphere with Venus. I don't know what keeps you going, but when I think about this and you use the word push, I know you have to push in the beginning. You have to message. You have to influence. You have to have people, money, economics, all behind that, probably some government and legal stuff in there as well. But I wonder what would eventually create pull or a sense of urgency for all of this, because that's ultimately what's going to make it mainstream or pull this thing forward. It seems like an uphill battle, but I wonder what can be done. That's a great question that I haven't really thought through. So I'll give you my off-the-cuff knee-jerk response. I, 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 two things come to mind, one kind of positive pull and one negative pull. You know, the positive pull that has happened always historically is if there's suddenly an economic incentive for going, there's also military objectives or possibilities, but let's say for, for Venus, well, actually for anything in, in, in general, whether it's the moon, Mars, Venus, if there's an economic incentive, that will create pull right? Like we experienced with Apollo with the moon, and we're kind of experiencing now with China on the moon. If, if there's a military need, there, there'll be a pull. That's, I think that's kind of a negative pull. But And then the other big ne- negative pull is what Elon always talks about with his reasoning for wanting to make humanity a multi-planet species, which is kind of a doomsday scenario, you know, that at some point, something's going to hit the planet, something's going to happen to the planet, it's going to make it inhospitable to human life. And so if we're going to continue as a species, we need, as he calls it, a plan B. There's plenty of science fiction books that have been written about that kind of pull. I guess another positive pull would be if we ever discovered intelligent alien life somewhere and they reached out and they wanted us to come out uh, and meet them halfway or something. But, you know, that now we're getting into science fiction. But Well, what I am just in awe of is, you know, and I come from, you know, a science and technology engineering background, you know, what is possible within what we know now, but people like you and all the people that are funding this, you invest in the possibilities because possibilities have become reality, hence all the technology advances that we have realized for society. I mean, think back to two generations back, you know, running water, you know, toilet in the house, all of that stuff were not possible or only a few enjoyed that. So I sincerely appreciate the work and the thousands and thousands of people that are supporting, whether it's Venus, Mars, or what have you. It this has just been an amazing conversation for me and really appreciate this. But if we had to bring this in a little bit, any last thoughts, inspiration, things you want to share with our audience? What always comes back is what we were talking about earlier is for people having the courage to do what they want to do in life and finding fulfillment and taking steps. I think 
some of the biggest lessons I've learned in life is just to, well, two things. One is if you have something in your head that you think is a goal, something that you want to achieve, the first step is to verbalize it to somebody else. That's the hardest thing is just saying it out loud to somebody else. And then that gets easier. Then you'll say it to someone else, someone else. You think it was easy for me, even 20 years in the space industry to tell anyone about putting people in the Venusian atmosphere. Like that took me a long time to get out of my mouth to somebody else. But once you do it, it makes it easier and it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It just kind of, it happens. Related to that, you brought it up a little bit is networking. This is both for experienced executives and also younger executives. It's just surround yourself with people that want the same thing that you do, or at least work in the same area that you want to do, and then and then push your way in that direction. And the last bit of advice I give this to my kids all the time is remember that, okay, this is a little bit different because dealing with space and oceans, we do have to deal with this. But unless you're making a decision that could lead to a fatality, like in ocean exploration or in space, but unless you're dealing with a decision that could lead to a fatality, every decision you make is reversible. There's always a way of unscrewing things. So don't be afraid of making mistakes, right? If you're CEO of a company and you're thinking, hey, maybe we should expand into another market, give it a shot, start, you know, and if it doesn't work out, then you can undo it. You know, it, it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, if you're a young executive or a young professional and you want to try a couple years working in a different industry, like go do it. You know, what's the worst that could happen? You know, your career takes a meandering path. Big deal. So appreciate your words. And a lot of it is validating for me as well, especially about verbalizing the future because ultimately it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and it becomes the reality. So Guillermo, I am just so thrilled that you decided to drop in on the Drop-In CEO podcast. Thank you for being having amazing insights. And I simply want to wish you and all the many around that you lead amazing success. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. If you found this episode valuable, please share this show with at least one friend who would find it useful and inspiring. Your support allows me to keep sharing insights and inspiration to leaders who are working their way to the C-suite. To connect with me or learn more about the Drop-In CEO services, go to my website at dropinceo.com. And until we meet, I wish you well and much success.